stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter six, we're gonna look at seven verses tonight. Verses one through seven. And I'm gonna ask if you would to follow along with me as I read this out loud for us. It's up here on the screen, it's in your bulletin, but also uh, in your Bible that I know you brought with you to be able to mark in and see God's word in your own Bible. God's word says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Let's pray. Father God, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts in here would be pleasing in your sight. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ and in his name alone, amen. Amen, thanks for standing. You guys go ahead and be seated. I came across a, an interesting fact, a little factoid this week that should have been obvious to me, but I've never heard it said quite like this. I was listening to a lecture by Professor Pastor. <laughs> I tried to put those two together and say Professor. That doesn't work. His name's Sinclair Ferguson. It's a fella, you know him? Yeah. It's that Scottish accent that you like, isn't it? And he said this. He said, there's not a single time in all of the Apostle Paul's writings that he refers to himself as a Christian nor is there a single time that he refers to anyone else, for that matter, as a Christian. And this label that we usually put on ourselves and that we use to understand ourselves is something that we never once find on the lips of the Apostle Paul. What we find instead is something else, another label, and it's simply in Christ. And you get the sense as you read through the letters of the Apostle Paul that if someone were to come to him and ask, what are you? Who are you? He wouldn't say, I'm a Christian, or he wouldn't say, I'm a believer, or he wouldn't say, I'm a Jesus follower. Not that there's anything wrong with any of those phrases. Some of them weren't even on the scene when Paul was ministering. But instead of any of those other labels, he would sort of get to the bottom of all of them and he would say this. I'm a man who has been united to Jesus Christ. I am in him. I feel like all of the apostles would have referred to themselves that way. Like I said, I have to give credit to that, to Sinclair Ferguson. I was, that lecture I was listening to, I came across because one of his main texts was the one that we looked at today. So I was listening to it throughout the week and just was struck by how, how much this passage shows us that Paul's self-understanding was so tied up in this union with Christ idea. I mean, it's everywhere in 
in what we just read. He has been baptized into Christ. He's been crucified with Christ. He's been buried with Christ. He, he, he's joined in Christ in his resurrection. He's joined in Christ in his death. I mean, over and over you get this union language in pretty much every aspect of the life of Jesus. And I know some of that has to sound pretty weird and mysterious if this is all very new to you. You're like, what, what, buried with Christ, what the heck does that mean? Well, Lord willing, we're gonna explain it a little bit more later on, talk about it more later on, but what I really want you to get first and foremost, just right out of the gate, is that when the Apostle Paul thinks about who he is, what he is, the most core thing is I am a man who is united to Jesus. I am in him and he is in I. This is actually what UWC stands for right here, Union with Christ. Uh, Pastor Brian thought that was um, a wrestling confederation. <laughs> and even, he's not alone, Monica, our office manager, was like, is that like the UFC or something? <laughs> no, no. UWC, Union with Christ, and I put it up there that way because when I was a seminary student, that was actually the shorthand that we use uh, to talk about this idea. It came up a lot, especially in one particular class. I remember this professor constantly just writing, UWC, UWC. Union with Christ is what it stood for. And so I figured I'd give a nod to that in the sermon title this week because you know, starting out of the gate, the big idea that I want us to begin with is who are we as Christians? What does that mean to say you're a Christian? It means that you're someone who is united to Jesus. That's what's at bottom. However, I, I am aware that, that using a, a, a shorthand that I used in seminary might give the wrong impression because it might make us think something that all of you guys probably already think, and that is that this is just some abstract theological term that it's just what people talk about in the classroom when they have nothing better to do. But it has no real import for real life. That couldn't be further from the truth. And even though UWC, my professor wrote it up on the board, the fact of the matter is it has serious implications for your real life. How you think about yourself, how you live, how you act, how you talk to others, it matters. And this is something that very easily goes from the classroom to the streets, so to speak. The text that we read today makes this abundantly clear. As a matter of fact, what we read today brings up the concept of union with Christ out of, uh, out of an objection that was happening in real life. There was a real world issue happening in the church that was affecting people's lives and that's the whole reason that this union with Christ idea is brought up in the letter because it matters to how people live. Here's what I mean. Right out of the gates in the passage that we read, it starts with this question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Let me say that again. I don't think you heard it. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? <laughs> oh, man, that was not what I was expecting right there, but I love it. 
No, absolutely not. Now, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. I wanna back up before we get to how Paul answers this. And I wanna, and I wanna just throw out to you guys, where would such a preposterous idea come from? Like, who would come up with something that gross? Humans, the flesh, yes. Jordan, hey, you were up in the church this morning, but to your credit, you got it right up there before you knew the answer. Yeah, Jordan knows what I'm fishing at here. What, what I wanna remind you guys is that idea, oh, excuse me, that's not an accurate way to say it. That theme maybe is better. It comes from something that Paul himself has just said a few sentences previously. So if we back up in chapter five, we talked about this on Super Bowl Sunday, so a lot of you guys didn't hear it. <laughs> so I'll read it for you. <laughs> Sorry, it's true though. Verse, chapter five, verse 20 says this. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so Paul is, is given this, this, this picture of what's happened historically, that when God's people sin, when humankind sin, the grace of God isn't nullified by that. It doesn't even like cancel it out. The grace of God is more. It always is better, bigger, abounds more than sin. Since we're talking about you know UWC possibly being a, a professional wrestling uh, confederation, think of it like this. Grace always comes off the top rope. It always knocks sin uh, to the ground, to the floor, to the mat. I should have thought about that metaphor once. You get what I'm saying. Here's the problem, though. To come back to what some of the folks down here said earlier, our flesh, our humanity, we take a beautiful idea like that and we say, huh, Wonder how far I can stretch that. If the more we sin, grace, the grace of God abounds even more than that, then let's, let's really push it. Let, uh, let's dig into sin a little bit deeper so that grace abounds even more. And then how about we dig even further down into our sin so God is glorified even greater with his grace that covers sins that are even broader than what we first fell into. That's where this idea is coming from. And, and just so you know, th this isn't purely hypothetical. It's something that uh, Paul's responding to because it's a very real challenge that he's coming up against in the church, whether it's people that are living like this or whether it's opponents of his that are saying, hey, all your teaching about grace, dude, this is what it ends up, this is what it comes to. This is what people will take away from it. So it's a real issue. And it's been a real issue historically in the church. Brian was telling us last week that he was a church history major. And so he could tell us examples of how this has popped up throughout time in the church. I even, I shared with the folks in Paradise this morning, I came across this quote from uh, the novelist W.H. Alden. It was from one of his novels that I had never read before, but there's a character in there, a doctor. And he says this, he says, I love adultery and God loves forgiveness. What a wonderful arrangement. I mean, it's, it, 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 you, we have to laugh because it's so bizarre and absurd, but thinking about the core of what that means, yuck. 
This is a real issue. So, how does Paul respond to that? Well, you guys all said it very convincingly. By no means. Absolutely not. No way. This is actually the same special Greek grammar that we've talked about once before in our study on the Romans. It's way back in chapter three. Uh, maybe the title of the sermon will jog your memory. I entitled it, No Way Jose. Does anybody remember that one? And I told you guys about when we learned in Greek class about this special grammar, uh, my, the Japanese student, that English was her second language, Dorothy, I loved her. But when she was trying to get a grip on what this passionate denial meant, she was like, it's kind of like no way Jose. And my teacher was like, yes, <laughs> that's it. Paul is viscerally, passionately saying, heavens, no, God forbid, or even I didn't say this previously, but it's almost like when somebody's drinking a glass of water and then they hear something crazy and they just spew the water out mid-drink. I don't know if that happens in real life, but at least in all the 90s sitcoms that I watched growing up, that happened a lot. Family Matters, you know. Carl Winslow did that a lot. That dated me, didn't it? <laughs> Um, okay, moving on. The spitting out of the water, that's essentially what Paul is doing here when he says, by no means. Now, when we saw this phrase before in chapter three, Paul didn't really explain what had made him like, react so passionately. But I told y'all then that there was gonna be a time when he did explain it more, and this is it. He does give us the reason for why he spits his water out here and it's, you can go to the next slide, Jess, um, or it's just the, the previous one that has the title on it, UWC, Union with Christ. That's the reason. I'm sorry, Hannah, you're back there. It's not Jess. Sorry, Jess has been doing it a lot recently. It's, uh, sorry about that, guys. Man, this is a train wreck. Union with Christ is the reason that he gives for why he just so passionately denies this. And in particular, it's union with Christ in his death. The very first thing after he spits his water out, so to speak, is he says this, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, there is a really a very real sense in which you've died. You've died with him. I mean, I, I kind of went through this earlier, but it's worth saying again. All throughout this text, we have the language of our death with Christ. We've been baptized into his death. We just read. We were buried with him, verse four says. Verse five, for if we've been united with him in a death like his. Verse six, we know that our old self was crucified just the language gets more and more intense as you go. And I know for many of you guys, you're hearing this, you're like, this sounds really morbid and weird and strange. Yeah, I'm with you. It is morbid and weird and strange. But it's also good. Because here's the thing. If we are united to Christ in his death, it means that the power of sin is broken 
We talk all the time at church, or at least I, I hope you hear us talking all the time at church, about how when Jesus died on the cross, he atoned for sins. He, he paid the price that we deserve. He offered us forgiveness of sins through that death on the cross. But one thing that sometimes we don't speak about quite as frequently, but it's just as powerful, is that when he dies on the cross, he breaks the power of sin. It's authority, it's influence, it's dominion. It's no more because Jesus, well, it will say later in chapter six, he died a death to sin on the cross. And so if you and I are joined with him in his death, it means that we too share that same broken sin that the power of sin is broken in our life. It doesn't lord over us anymore in the way that it did before. See, previously, before we knew Jesus or before Jesus was even on the scene, here's the relationship we had with sin. It was our master. It dominated us. It was so powerful in our heart, mind, and spirit that we couldn't get away from it. And, and the things that we know are right, that we wanna do, we can't do them properly. And the things that we know are wrong and evil, we are irresistibly drawn to them. As soon as you tell me, that's wrong, don't do that, what do I wanna do? <laughs> I don't wanna go do that. This is the power that sin had in my life. But if I were to die, if you were to die, so to speak, in a spiritual sense, sin wouldn't dominate you like that anymore it wouldn't have that same control over you. How can it control the dead person? And that dynamic that we felt all our life with sin all of a sudden now is finished, it's done, or to use some of the language of the text, it's buried. It doesn't influence us like that anymore. That's the logic that Romans chapter six is trying to present to you. That if you've died with Christ, if you've died with Christ, sin can't control you like it used to. Verse six says it way better than I ever could. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, and I take the body of sin there to mean everything about it, the whole package, its dominion, its authority, its consequences, its guilt, so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing and that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The death that Jesus died broke the power of sin. It's the same thing for us if we're joined in him. Notice at the end of that passage, Paul began to sort of mix his metaphors a little bit. He had been talking about death and life and now he starts to talk about liberation language, freedom and slavery. And he says, think of it like this. The former relationship you had with sin was like it was your slave master. It was over you, it kept you in chains, but now you've died and that master doesn't have anything to lord over anymore. Your death with Jesus has in essence made you free, loosened your chains and said, go forth in freedom. So to kind of bring this back to where we started, 
Some people are accusing Paul of saying, if you preach grace that boldly, people are gonna think that they should sin more so that grace can abound more. And he says, no, grace doesn't do that. Grace doesn't give people a license to sin. Grace tells them that they are united to Christ and that they've died to that old life. How could they possibly walk in it anymore? Of course, being dead to sin is not the only thing we get when we're joined to Christ. We also become alive to God. Verse five said it like this, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Jesus didn't stay dead, guys. And neither do you spiritually. And if all this talk I've had about death and burial and crucifixion is making you think this is morbid and weird, hear me say this. That's only one part of the story. The second half, the ending half, is that in him, you get his resurrection life. And the, the, the death of Jesus that you share in breaks the power of sin in your life, but guess what? The resurrection that you share in with Christ now gives you a new power, the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. The power of the love of God to hear the Father say, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Tell me, is there anything more powerful to compel you to joyful obedience than that? No. That's what cultivates real obedience in our life. Not short-lived, guilt-driven obedience. No, real obedience comes from knowing that we are united with Jesus so closely that his resurrection is ours now to walk in newness of life. I, I was struck most this week as I studied for this text in, in the fact that, well, let me put it like this. I was struck most with what Paul did not say in this part of the letter. Keep in mind, he's just been accused of this gross, awful implication, so to speak, of his gospel, that what he says is gonna make people sin more so that God's grace can abound. He's just been, had that charge laid at his feet. And I feel like the human instinct at that moment would be to, to, to dilute what he's just said, to walk it back to water down the grace he's just been talking about. Like, he, he would basically say, oh, I don't want y'all to get the wrong impression. Let me, uh, uh, all that grace talk before, let me reel it back in here. I went too far. Let, let me dilute it with some commands to be a better person or some new rules to keep. You know, balance it out so you don't get the wrong idea. A, a little bit of law, a little bit of grace, that, that's better. He doesn't do that. He actually doubles down on who you are in Christ. Because he knows that reintroducing the law for the purpose of making you obedient, that's not the way. That's a return to the old way. That's perhaps a return to legalism. 
what he knows is going to be the most sure antidote for this misconception of his teaching is to say, listen, you gotta understand who you are in Jesus. Who you are in Jesus. That being in him means that you share in his death. The power of sin doesn't have dominion over you anymore. That who you are means that you share in his resurrection, that you have the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in the newness of life. And that it does not make sense to go back to the old way that you're released from because you're in Jesus now. I'm convinced that Paul is saying that if any man, woman, or child would truly get this and embrace this from the heart, they wouldn't want to entertain questions of, can I sin more so that God's grace can abound? What? Don't you know who you are in him? So I came across this quote this week. Um, it was in that same lecture that I've referred to before. Uh, the quote is from John Owen, uh, 17th century pastor, theologian, uh, really cool guy. And he's writing this letter to a young pastor that's coming up in the ministry. And he, in the course of this letter, he tells the young pastor that there are two great challenges of pastoral ministry two great challenges. And my first thought when I was hearing this was like, I already know what they are. Like, duh, the challenge is pastoring a church where people wanna wear masks and people don't wanna wear masks. <laughs> I already know this, John Owen. <laughs> Go figure that's not what he said. That's the great challenge of ministry. He said, these are the two great challenges. Number one, convincing people who don't know Jesus that they are under the dominion of sin and they desperately need salvation. It's the work of evangelism, right? To a world that's blind and doesn't even know they're under the dominion of sin, to, to bring that to their attention and call them to the gospel of Jesus. But here's the second great challenge of ministry. To convince those who do know Jesus that they are no longer under the dominion of sin. And they are united to Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. Why is that such a challenge? That should be easy peasy, piece of cake. I mean, isn't that how it works? I, I preach a sermon and you guys remember it forever? <laughs> it transforms me forever? It's the great challenge of ministry because it's the thing that we're prone to forget the quickest and easiest. It's the thing that our flesh is prone to fight against. The thing that the devil wants to undermine constantly. And Owen says, young man, you might be a pastor for 60, 70 years and you'll find that this is the hardest thing to do. It's for your people to know and to believe that they are united to Christ and therefore no longer under the power of sin. There's one last thing that I need to speak about before we end our time. This is the conclusion, so don't worry. It's about baptism. I wouldn't be doing this text justice if I didn't speak about baptism because it comes up frequently in this passage. So let's talk about what it means here. Uh, it, as far as I know, 
This is the only place in the New Testament where union with Christ and baptism are so closely connected. The Apostle Paul speaks about union with Christ a lot, but I think this is the only spot where he connects these two ideas so closely. And I think I know the reason for that. And it's not something I discovered, it's a lot of people say this. It's because of the comparison between Adam and Jesus that's just preceded this whole section. If you remember, all of chapter five was about comparing Adam, our first representative, with Jesus, our second, our righteous representative. And I think what Paul is doing is he's saying this, when you are born into this world as a human being, you are born with the name of Adam. His family name is over you meaning that your designation is one that has all of his disobedience, his, his, his guilt, his sin. That's the name that's stamped on your forehead. But when you are baptized, you have another name spoken over you, the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's Jesus's family name. That's what's spoken over you in your baptism. And so it's there that we have that definitive moment of saying, I am no longer in the family of Adam wearing his name. I'm in the family of God wearing his name because I'm in Christ, because I'm united with him. I am joined into part of that family. It struck me that one of the songs that we sang tonight said just that. My name is Joshua Roberts Lee. Roberts with an S. I'm very particular about that because that's my dad's name. His middle name, that is. His name is Jeffrey Roberts Lee. I believe that Roberts is a grandmother's maiden name at some point. But I was named after my dad. Our initials are identical, J-R-L. And my sister's son, Silas, is Silas Roberts. This morning in Paradise, I think I said his name was Silas Roberts Lee, and then later I was like, that's not right. She's been married for 20 years. <laughs> his name is Silas Roberts Henson. And I think if I ever have a son one day, you better believe I'm gonna be campaigning for that Roberts middle name. And you know, when I was first called by that name, when they put it on my birth certificate, it didn't magically transform anything in me. But it did have great impact on my life as the years went on because as that name was called, more and more I began to understand that that was me. That name was mine. And when my mom said, Joshua Roberts Lee, I heard myself in that. Usually she said that when she was angry at me, right? But that was referring to me and that was my dad's name. And even I have things at my home that are from him that have the monogram JRL that now are mine. More and more I began to see that name as connecting me, rooting me in my family, my legacy, my father's legacy. And I wonder if we can say that same thing about baptism here, that Paul is so eager to bring it up in this text because he knows it is the most powerful thing you have to connect you to your union with Christ. 
to, to remind you, to show you, to make you say, that's my name that I was given. Not the name of Adam, not the name of sin, but the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I'm in that family. My baptism proves it. Now, I know for many of you guys, you might be curious and you're like, Josh, it almost sounds like he's saying here that our baptism is what creates our union with Christ. It's like the instrumentation of it. Well, it's not really something that Paul addresses right here in this text, but we know from other places in the New Testament that baptism doesn't save you, that water doesn't create your union with Christ. That's a work of the Holy Spirit inwardly. That, if anything, this is a representation of something that's gone on inward. Your union with Christ isn't contingent on it. However, I'd like to say something. I didn't say this this morning, but I really feel like it's necessary to say here, even though I'm going a little late. I think if the Apostle Paul was here in this pulpit and he was teaching on this and one of us raised our hands and we're like, Paul, is it necessary to be baptized to get union with Christ? Even though he would have so many things to say about like, no, it's an internal reality, baptism doesn't save you, I think his first reaction would be something different. I think the first thing he would say is, why aren't you baptized? What, what are we waiting for? Who would want union with Christ but not want baptism, the, the public announcement of the name over you? We, we, Brian and I run into this sometimes where you guys, some of y'all have noticed that when we invite people to the Lord's Supper, we invite those who believe in Jesus and have been baptized in his name. And sometimes we'll have conversations, be like, is, is baptism necessary to, to take the Lord's Supper? And there's a lot we could say. We could say, well, you know, it's not some magical connection. Or, you know, in the Bible, you see the sacraments kind of working together, but really, what I wanna say more than anything else is, let's get you baptized. What are we waiting for? Like in Acts 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, here is some water, what's preventing me from being baptized? Why not? I'm eager for everyone in my care in this church to be able to read through Romans 6 and when Paul talks about your baptism being the proof you have of your union with Christ that you would be able to read that and be like, yeah, I have that. I have the name of the triune God spoken over me. And I hope you don't hear me saying this in any shaming way or accusatory way. It's not. It's an invitation to say that if you are here and you are following Jesus and believe in him with your whole heart, let's do this. And let's celebrate together as the family of faith the fact that you no longer have the name of Adam. You have the family name of Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that matters in your walk with God. It's one of the most powerful tools you have to resist the accusations of the devil, to resist the, the, the temptations of your own flesh and to say, I am in Christ. What are we waiting for? I am way over time. So let me pray and turn it over to the musicians for one final song.
Lord, help us to know who we are. People united to Jesus. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.